I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. This morning, um, we are going to look at one of the most foundational, fundamental truths of the Reformation, one that does not always get a lot of attention. The focus is going to be on Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64. Uh, in addition to that, I'm also going to read from Matthew 4, 17. So Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. And from Matthew 4, 17 from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we ask that you would clear away every distraction. that you would help us to zero in on your presence in your word, your presence within us as those who have taken the name of Jesus Christ, your presence that makes your word alive to us, that reveals to us the truth about ourselves, the truth about your holiness, truth about your grace and love, the truth of what you think of us because of Jesus Christ. Help us to embrace these things by faith, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we had a great time last night, or yesterday afternoon, or whatever that time period was of the day. Um, a great time, though, that I would say uh, went all the way back to the morning. A, a great time of working together, getting this place prepared to celebrate the Reformation, to have some fun together, uh, to enjoy some games together, to enjoy some, some good comfort food in hamburgers and hot dogs and bunions together, corn dogs, to enjoy some games with 
prizes and with candy. And so what better thing for us to do, having celebrated the Reformation in that way, than to also celebrate truth the next morning by focusing on repentance. That was a joke. It is weird to go from having so much fun to now let's talk about repentance. But we're talking about repentance this morning. As the the sermon title says, Christ has willed the entire life of believers to one of repentance. The entire Christian life can be summed up with Christ's call to repentance. Why is this something to focus in on on the Reformation Sunday as as we typically talk about those five solas of the the recovered gospel, right? That the scripture alone is our sole authority for what we believe and what we do as the church. That salvation is by grace alone. That there is nothing for you to add There is nothing for you to do. It is by God's grace alone, his demerited favor that he saves us. It is by faith alone. There is nothing for you to do. There is no obedience left to be done. Jesus has obeyed perfectly and his perfect obedience is imputed and it is received by faith and by faith alone. That it is through Christ alone that we have our standing with God. It is not Jesus plus you. It is not Jesus plus Mary. It's not Jesus plus the saints. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And that all of this is for the glory of God alone, who is worthy of eternal glory, who is worthy of eternal praise and adoration, that he is worthy to be celebrated forevermore. Where does repentance fit into this? Well, if you believe that the Reformation began October 31st, 1517, with the nailing of Martin Luther's 95 theses to the church door, or the the castle church door there in Wittenberg in in what is today known as Germany. If you believe that the Reformation began with that action, then we look to the 95 Theses to find out what was Luther worked up about. These 95 Theses that he was nailing to the door there Uh, were 95 propositions that he wanted to debate. They were 95 ideas that he thought needed to be discussed and debated because he thought there was some serious error that was at play within his little realm of the world with regards to the activities of the Roman Catholic Church. And the totality of these 95 theses can and has been summarized well in the very first thesis. In thesis number one, 
when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent. Matthew 4, 17. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What was at stake here was that what you and I take as this biblical doctrine of repentance was something that had been completely and totally clouded over. And if you had talked to your average believer, your average churchgoer there in in, in Wittenberg or anywhere where the Roman Catholic Church existed, if you had asked them, you know, can you tell me about repentance, they would have looked at you like you had three heads. It wasn't a word that they used. It wasn't a concept that they spent time focusing on. Instead, if you wanted to connect with them, you would ask them, tell me what it's like, or tell me about this thing of doing penance. You see, the Latin Vulgate translation of Matthew 4, 17, where Jesus says, uh, repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, that translation in the Latin Vulgate, penitentium agitae, was a bad translation of the original Greek. In the original Greek, it didn't say do penance, which is what penitentium agitae means. Do penance. The Greek the, the, the original Greek, it called for metanoeo, repent. And metanoeo means to change one's mind. Changing one's mind is a very different concept than do penance. One of the things that was being recovered at the time of the Reformation was not just ideas, but the sources from which those ideas were coming. For hundreds of years, the church had been using the Latin Vulgate, a, a Latin translation of the, of the Hebrew um, Old Testament and sometimes a Latin translation of the Greek translation of the Old Testament and a, a Latin translation of the Greek New Testament. But what had been recovered at the time of the Reformation were many of these Greek um, the copies of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And a man named Erasmus had just put together, through a collection of different Greek New Testament documents, had put together what we now today know as the, New, the Greek New Testament that stands behind the King James Version of the Bible, or what is often referred to as the Textus Receptus. Luther had gotten a copy, and he had been reading and studying the New Testament in Greek rather than reading it and studying it in the Latin. And what he saw as he was reading was that the Greek New Testament never talked about this concept, doing penance. It constantly, though, 
was talk about repenting, repenting, changing your mind, turning around. This did not begin on October 31st for Luther. It didn't even begin in October for Luther. In fact, most of what he says in these 95 theses are not all that controversial. If you read through them, one of the things you'll find is Luther thinks he's defending the Pope. He thinks he's defending the Pope against some abuses that are taking place at that time and that in defending, he thinks he's trying to bring the church back to a a better understanding of things. But at the same time, just about a month prior to October 31st, he delivered a series of lectures where he basically refutes all of medieval theology that was in place at the day. He basically says, I don't hold to any of it. I think it's all wrong. Now, for some reason, that doesn't get a lot of press. I'll tell you why in a minute. But theologically, he had said way more controversial things, but that didn't get him in trouble. But it also, even those lectures were not the beginning. Back in January of 1517, as Luther was carrying out his duties as a minister there in the castle church in Wittenberg, one of his responsibilities was to carry out a service that was done every January where the service was serving as an indulgence for those who would attend especially the prince. The prince would attend, and the service was supposed to, and I forget the details, it was supposed to get you a certain number of years out of purgatory. Halfway through Luther's sermon, where he is preaching an indulgent sermon halfway through, he realizes, hold up, this this doesn't really make sense. And so the second half of his sermon, he argues against the first half of his sermon. Now you know where I get it from. In the first half, as he's preaching this indulgence, it, 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 it sits upon him, hold up. If what we're doing here, if this is right, what... This really doesn't make sense with with who God is. It doesn't make sense about what the scripture teaches about sin itself. And if this is true, then why would the average churchgoer take sin seriously? Why would they care? Why would they go to confessional, which he thought was a proper way of doing things? Why would they come and confess their sins? What's the big deal? They, they, they're, they're getting this, this indulgence. Now, the indulgence that was being offered at that time was not all that massive. But by the time you get to October of 1517, there is an indulgence that is being offered to people that if they pay some money, then what they are getting is uh, just like Monopoly, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, they were, they were being handed a get-out-of-purgatory-free piece of paper. And they could buy one for themselves. They could buy one for their beloved mother who had passed, and um, 
maybe she didn't have the most righteous life, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help Mama out, buy her this indulgence, and I'll get her out of purgatory. See, the problem with the system that was in play at that time, and you're going to see that in the movie this evening, so I'm not going to spend much time on it here, that there was no guarantee that you could be fully acceptable to God. It didn't matter how much you prayed. It didn't matter how devoted you were. It didn't matter how consistently you went to Mass. It didn't matter how much money you gave. It didn't matter how many saints you, you celebrated throughout the year. It didn't matter how many festivals you attended. It didn't matter how many times you asked Mary for help. There was nothing there to guarantee for you to have a sure footing with God. The way the system worked, on the one hand, was they said, well, look, God knows that you can't be perfect. So what God does is he uses a moving scale of righteousness with each individual. And as long as you do your personal best, God has decided that he'll accept that. Now, what's the problem with that? How do you know that you are doing your personal best? It actually doesn't provide a safe place before God at all. How do I know if I'm doing my best? Well, the way it worked for Luther is that he would go to his confessor and spend hours confessing every sin that he could remember. Quite often after spending hours doing that, and look, typically back then, you know, the average individual would go maybe spend five minutes with their confessor. He was spending hours. And then he would leave only a few minutes later to remember a couple that he had forgotten and come back and do it all over again. He was wearing his confessor out. But that's how he dealt with it. How did he know if he was doing his own personal best? He, He couldn't know. There was no hope in that that system. Well, what the the church also was teaching was you try to do your personal best. Now, if you're not doing your personal best, here are some things that you can do. And if you do this and you do this and you do this, you can earn certain years uh, out of purgatory. And one of the, the biggest things that you could do in that day was on November 1st, All Saints Day, you would go and you would look upon and pray near all these little things that the the prince had, these original splinters of the cross, or uh, in the movie, uh, it jokes, uh, uh, milk, original milk from from the virgin's breast. Like, he's really kind of, you know... Skulls of saints, skulls of martyrs, where you could come and touch the skull of a martyr and somehow that earned you certain things. And, and, and the prince there in Wittenberg had one of the best collections of this stuff. Well, guess how you got access to that? You had to pay some money. So now are you starting to figure out why Luther was starting to get in trouble? wasn't theology he started messing with money 
And on October 31st, the day before All Saints Day, on All Hallows' Eve, for what we call today Halloween, he put 95 statements on the door so that there could become some debate. And part of that debate had to do with what his own prince and protector was doing. And he was calling into question this indulgent system that if you paid money and you got to hold a, a splinter of the cross that you earned yourself a couple of years out of purgatory, he was calling that system into question. Greater than that, Pope Leo X at this time has decided that he wants to put the display of Christ out for everyone to see, put the glory of Christ on display by creating what today we know as St. Peter's Basilica. The way you put Christ's glory on display is by, by uh, making a lot of money off of really poor Christians in order to make this grandiose building that really points to you rather than to Christ. Pope Leo X, by the way, who many don't always remember, was a member of the Medici, or the Medici, however you say it, the Medici family, one of the wealthiest families in all of Europe. He had the money to do it himself. But instead, he allowed these false preachers to go out into, the, into Europe, and, and mainly in Germany, and they would go around and they were preaching. If you buy this indulgence, you're not just going to get a couple of years knocked off. You will not have to spend any time in purgatory. Your mother, your dad, your cousins. And people were buying them and buying them and buying them. When you look at St. Peter's Basilica today, When you look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel that was paid for, where Michelangelo was paid for that on the basis of these indulgences, what you are looking at is a monument to the testimony of death, false religion, Stealing people's hope in Christ. That's what you're looking at. Testimony to a man's ego. Not a testimony to the glory of Jesus. That's how the money was raised. Going around lying to people. And what Luther understood was if someone can just buy their way out of purgatory, which he still believed in at this time, by the way. If people can just buy their way out, what motivates them to confess their sin? What motivates them to do penance? And what he came to realize was penance wasn't even the right concept because Jesus didn't call us to do penance. Jesus called us to repent and to believe. 
this system of penance, this system of indulgences. This is what led to Luther in his reading of the Greek New Testament and seeing that Jesus had not called for penance but repentance, that Luther was recovering something so essential to what it means for you and for me to be rightly related to God. And that is repentance. Though repentance is not mentioned as one of the five solas, as repentance is not the, you know, mentioned in terms of justification by faith alone, uh, even though uh, repentance is not mentioned as, as part of that scripture alone, these different uh, primary principles of the Reformation that we so often focus on on this day, repentance and the gift of grace that repentance is over against the works of death of penance is what led to where we are today. And so what does it mean for us to repent? Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64, are a very beautiful and very simple, straightforward presentation of what repentance looks like. The repentance that Jesus calls for in order to embrace him and through him to enter into his kingdom, that repentance is so simply set forward uh, here in, in these seven verses that are part of this large, the longest psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 119. Now, many of you know this is an acrostic psalm. That means that for each section of the psalm, all the first words of each line start with the same letter. And here we find ourselves in the sixth section or the, or the chaith section. And every word that starts each line of this psalm starts is a word that starts with the letter chaith. So this is one of the messiest portions of the psalm because if you say chaith over uh, too many times close back to back, you're going to be spitting on all your friends. So be careful if you try to do this in the Hebrew. But it is a wonderful, simple presentation of repentance. So let's look at it very quickly. The prayer that we see that is being described here is one of great intimacy. We are told in verse 58 that the psalmist says, I entreat your favor with all my heart. And the word that is used here for entreat, it really literally means, it means to stroke or to caress the face. It was a, a word that was used politically. If, if you wanted to get something out of the king, what would you do? You would come to the king and you would flatter him, right? What we see here is, is that the psalmist uses this imagery, not one of trying to flatter to use God to get your way, but the intimacy of what prayer is for us as God's people, that we get to caress his face as we seek his help. Notice that from the very beginning here. 
the focus is on God and God alone. I have a need, the psalmist says, and I cannot provide for my own need. It can only be provided by God. So there is a God alone feature here to the prayer along with this intimacy of caressing the face of the Lord where he asks for the Lord's favor or, or what we often refer to as God's grace. And notice he says it's according to your promise. He is not going to, to God hoping to get something that he's not sure if he's guaranteed. What he's doing is in the intimacy of having access to his God, he comes and he caresses the face and he says, remember your promise. I need that right now. God had promised in a, in a very simple way, going all the way back to Genesis 15, that God would be the God of his people, as this covenant formula that we are so well aware of. I will be your God, you will be my people. In Genesis 15, uh, what we see is God expresses this as he says it to Abram. He says, he says Abram, I am your shield I am your exceeding great reward. I am giving myself to you, Abram. And I'm calling you to give yourself in response. In Deuteronomy 28, God had told his people that to those who who would live uh, in devotion to him, that they would receive blessing. And there are lots of different blessings that are talked about there, but one of the primary blessings that are mentioned there in Deuteronomy 28.7 is the Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. And what is the circumstance of this psalm in Psalm 119? Well, something's going on because the cords of God's enemies have, have the psalmist ensnared. There is some kind of conflict. There is some kind of tension. He is the object of of these enemies' intentions. And based upon the promise of God, he is saying, if I'm devoted to you, you have promised to give me your grace, to give me your favor. You have promised to defeat my enemies for me. You and I know, maybe not literal cords having been wrapped around us with the enemies of God standing there laughing at us in the process. But you and I know that as those who live in this world with devils filled, as those who live under the constant wrath of the defeated one, as those who live with the ongoing conflicts with our own hearts because of sin, within this world because of sin, within this church because of sin. But as sin is still a present reality in the world, the flesh and the devil, beloved, we live as those who find ourselves constantly under attack, constantly needing to be ready to fight because neutrality is not an option. As in opposition to Everett and, O oh brother, where art thou? There are no spiritually unaffiliated.
As those who are the people of God, we live within a constant warfare. And what we need is God to fight our battles. And the grace that we are looking for, beloved, is a grace that he has promised. So how do we embrace that grace? We go to him and we caress his face as our loving father who knows our weakness, who knows our needs. And we say, remember what you have promised. I need that from you. So one, if you're going to repent, you have to ascertain the grace of God that is so freely there for you through Jesus Christ. You have to perceive it. You have to trust it. And then you have to act on it. And you go to God and you are honest about your needs. Secondly, notice what he does. As he says, as you have promised your, your protection and provision to those who, who follow you, he doesn't claim to have followed perfectly. Notice what he says in, in 59. I think on my way and I turn my feet to your testimony. I realize, Lord, that I have not perfectly followed you according to your truth. And so I am open and I am proactive in seeking out your correction. I know that I am not perfect. I know that I have not perfectly devoted myself to you according to your word. And so I look into your word and I look at myself and I have to agree with your word. I am not perfect. I have sinned. I have not perfectly walked according to your ways. And when he says, I, I think on my ways, the Hebrew word there means not just while I'm thinking about it, it means that, that, that one renders a judgment. I think and I acknowledge that I have not perfectly lived according to your ways. And so I turn, I turn, the Hebrew word shuv, I turn from the ways of which I am going and I turn back to your ways. This is repentance. The turning, the changing of one's mind, the acknowledgement of imperfection that needs to be repented of, the acknowledgement of, of going after something that is lesser than God himself, going after something that is contrary to God himself, going after something in place of God or going after something to, to add to God. Whatever it is, he is not living as one perfectly devoted to God alone as, a, as the first commandment requires. His judgment of his own sin is not something that keeps him away from the Lord, though. Because the Lord to him is not some scary, angry God that can never be pacified, as the Catholic Church was teaching at the time of the Reformation. He is a loving God who is so intimate with his people, he allows them to come and to caress his face. 
to ask for his help. This idea of turning back, by the way, is as it's written in the Hebrew, it's not just the idea of I turn, it's the, uh, it, it brings with it the thrust of causation. He is caused to turn. As he looks into God's testimonies, God speaking through his words brings him back. There is a willingness there is an acknowledgement and there is a proaction here that, that I can be and I have been wrong. I have not lived up according to your standards, but I have looked to you to bring me back to yourself and to provide me the protection that I need. And then lastly, notice what he does in response to all this. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. After having been honest about his need, honest about his sin, as he has placed himself in the hands of his loving Lord, he then renews his calling of devotion and obedience. And he says, God, help me as I continue to try to according to what you have done. Beloved, none of us are going to live perfectly. And the perfection that God requires is a gift that he's given you in Jesus Christ. What he asks of us as his children are to have the gratitude of hearts that respond to his gift by hating anything that is contrary to the gift. Hating our sin, as we see exemplified in David in, in 1 Samuel 12. Hating the sin. Not hating ourselves. Hating the sin. Recognizing how horrible it is. Recognizing the cost. And allowing God's word to be that mirror into which we look to be able to be honest about the ways that we fall short. But because of the mercy that is to be found in God as the one who will not put us to death when we are trusting in his provisions of life. And so the Christian life is one in which we embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ alone by grace, through faith, alone, where we receive it. And out of the gratitude of our hearts, we say to the Lord, I'm going to devote myself to you, even though you and I both know I'm not going to only be devoted to you. And as I become aware through the reading of your word of those places where I have not been devoted, I'm going to confess those things to you. I'm going to be renewed in your grace. And I'm going to go out in gratitude once again and strive to be devoted to you alone. But you and I both know I'm not going to do it. And so I promise that when, as I become aware that I haven't been devoted to you alone, I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to confess, confess it. I'm going to be renewed in your grace. And I'm going to go back out and I'm going to try to devote myself again. But you and I both know, God, I'm not going to do it. 
And God's grace never runs out. Both in receiving you as one who has tried and failed, but also as that grace that he has bestowed on you once and for all, that once you're my child and my, the perfection of my son has been given to you, there is nothing that can take that righteousness away. Jehovah God knows our struggle. He knows that we cannot live up to his perfect standard. And so he has been pleased to give us Christ. And he has been pleased to love us as a father and to grant us everything that we need to keep ourselves centered on him and his gift so that our lives would be one of, of a constant cultivation of attitude to God through worship, through discipleship, and through the mission of the church of Jesus. And as we cultivate those things within our lives, beloved, it leads us not to boast in ourselves, but to boast in him. It leads us to think and meditate upon his works, upon his surpassing greatness. It leads us to sing and to open our lips to declare his praise. And it will lead us to become more and more honest with ourselves, let alone honest with God and honest with one another. Beloved, what it means to be a Reformation church is to be a church that is committed to the grace of God that both empowers our devotion and leads us to righteousness. So as you Think upon, as, as you continue your reflection upon and celebration of this Reformation, as you get tempted to get caught up in, into the theology and the history and all that fun stuff, don't move past this most basic fundamental concern of Luther, fundamental concern of the psalmist, that we must constantly caress God's face through his word, and allow God to speak to us and to correct us, that we must be willing to be wrong and that we must proactively seek out God's correction in our lives, not as a way of, of earning something that you don't have, but as a way of drilling down even more deeply to everything that you do have in Jesus. Beloved, the whole of the Christian life is repentance. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that as we travel through this world and through the conflicts that come from the world, the flesh, and the devil, that you have not left us to fight on our own. You have not left us to accomplish the victory, but you have accomplished a once-for-all victory through Jesus Christ. And that victory guarantees to us, Heavenly Father, that you are no longer a threat to us. It guarantees to us that we are no longer a threat to ourselves. It guarantees that the world is no longer a threat to us. It guarantees that the devil cannot do anything to us. 
And so help us as your people to spend our lives sowing into the Spirit the truth of your word and that amazing intimacy of your presence as you are our portion within this world. And so help us to let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. Help us to live for your glory according to your word as those who in the confidence that Christ provides to run to you over and over and over confessing our sins repenting and turning from that sin back to you and asking for your help as we seek to live for you every day. Father, we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.